Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Show Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweki Imizi. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and if my story were a stack of photographs, then a huge chunk of it would probably be moldering in a storage box in a basement somewhere. Across the table from me is... Hi, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and if you two are making any weird comments, I might start sucking my teeth at you. So if you hear any <laughs> weird sounds, that, that that's just me. Well, I'm Trevor, the branch head at the Louis Rail Library, and a Nigerian proverb I came across is, words are sweet, but they can never replace food. <laughs> Agreed. A good book can carry me away from an ever without you. We love hearing your opinions about the books we're reading, so tell us your secret thoughts that no one else knows. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around till the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Before we get into the episode, let's do a little check-in. Yeah, well, hey, uh, how, how are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Surviving. Doing all right. I turned 50 just a couple of weeks ago, so Yay. it's a bit of a milestone for me. That's excellent. Full half century now. Yeah. Did you celebrate it in any way during these COVID times? Yes, at home quietly with my wife and my cat. Oh, that sounds... Like Which is the way wife. we usually celebrate it, so, you know, <laughs> it worked out great. My wife made steaks. It was great. Ah, oh, nice. Well, I, we're talking about the podcast, and uh, our listeners may be interested to know that we've been nominated as a finalist for a Canadian online publishing award in the category of best podcast series in the consumer division so yay for us i guess yeah. uh, i happened to look at the other nominees in our category just to see what we're up against you know they're they're pretty solid uh pretty solid podcasts there's one that's called uh well there's two that are french and uh two that are english plus plus ours so the first french one is called complant 101, which translates into Conspiracies 101. So that's right in my wheelhouse, mm -hmm. misinformation from Quebec. So, I mean, yes, you know, I, I'm on board with them. Then another one's called En Privé, s'il vous plaît, which it translates to In Private, Please. And from what I can tell, this is uh, two young women in Quebec discussing issues of the day. I don't know if that would, you know, it's the same uh, caliber as what uh, we have to offer, <laughs> but uh, then this one I'm a little worried about. It's called The Well-Endowed Podcast mm -hmm. by the Edmonton Community Foundation, which uh, talks about different community outreach initiatives in Edmonton, and they seem like they're doing lots of great work. And the last one is a, just a five-part series, so a limited series called The Sound Aquatic and it's just, uh, as far as I could tell, a bunch of uh, <laughs> marine biologists who have been recording the sounds of the ocean and, and telling us what it's all about. I don't know if we can beat out ocean sounds. Well, I know. You know, I mean, we, we, we were mesmerized by the Island of Sea Women <laughs> uh, when yes. we did that one. So, so that's sort of our, either we want to think of them as our competition or as our uh, comrades 
in the over the airwaves. But uh, good luck to all of the nominees. And I think in February we may find out whether ocean sounds beat us. Mm-hmm. The sound of like a, a manatee, <laughs> the lone, the lone mourn for well of manatee. <laughs> I wow okay um I yeah okay I don't have anything to respond to that um I do want to say I'm excited about a book that I got ordered for the system I recently wrote a blog post for the Winnipeg Public Library blog about book talk which is this niche of TikTok dedicated to all things books and a book that's very popular on book talk that we didn't have in our collection is something called Ice Planet Barbarians <laughs> um, and so I ordered it for our system. It's it's uh, it's on the way, so you can put it on hold. And it is a romance about this spaceship full of women that crash on an alien planet. And there's some like alien human sex going on. Um, yeah. So if- the manatee approves. <laughs> So I would suggest putting your holds on that now before all the youths who are hip to the the book talk also get their holds on it. Wow, I so, love that title. Yeah, it's a great title. And I think there's like 20 books in this series. So um, <laughs> a possible future uh, time to read <laughs> totally. uh, pick, perhaps. Yeah. Ice Planet Barbarians. We'll get the TikTok crowd in on our listening. Yeah. So now it's time for Trevor to give us a summary of the book, but... Actually, Trevor will wait a moment while Toby tells us a bit about the author. Okay, Akweke Amizi. This was a bit challenging to write as there's not a lot of straightforward biographical information about them. So for instance, their bio on their website says that they are an artist and writer based in liminal spaces whose art practice is located in the metaphysics of black spirit and uses video, performance, writing, and sculpture to create rituals processing their embodiment as a non-human entity and Obanji, a deity's child. So I'll try to unpack that a bit. Um, Amizi was born in 1987 to an Igbo Nigerian father and an Indian Tamil mother. Uh, they grew up in Abba, Nigeria, where Amizi and their sister used storytelling to escape the dangerous reality of their childhood. Um, these dangers are detailed in their memoir, which just came out this year and includes the town burning due to riots, as well as a heap of decomposing bodies outside the teaching hospital. Amizi was a voracious reader as a child and began writing short stories at five. They moved to the U.S. at 16, studied international public policy and nonprofit management at New York University and creative writing at Syracuse. Their first novel, Freshwater, was published in 2018. It is a semi-autobiographical novel about a young Nigerian woman named Ada who has different selves as a result of being born with one foot on the other side. Their second novel, Pet, published in 2019, is a young adult novel about a black trans girl. The Death of Vivek Oji was published in 2020. All of these received heaps of critical acclaim. This year, they published Dearson Thurin, a black spirit memoir. Next year is going to be extremely busy. Um, in 2022, they are publishing a romance, the screen rights of which have already been sold, a poetry collection, and a YA novel. Uh, so if you weren't keeping track, that is seven books in five genres in four years. Uh, if you do any sort of research or reading about Amizi or their work, you see the term Obanji referenced over and over again. Amizi says they are an Obanji, and it's pretty crucial to their life and work. So I, I just wanted to get into that a little bit. 
So a Banji is an Igbo spirit. Igbo are the people primarily living in southeastern Nigeria. Um, so an Igbo spirit that's born into a human body. It's kind of a malevolent trickster whose goal is to torment the human mother by dying unexpectedly, only to return in the next child and do it all over again. Igbu believes everyone to be in a cycle of reincarnation with their ancestors, but the Obanji disrupts the cycle. They do not come from the lineage. They come from nowhere. And Amizi ties the fact of them being an Obanji with also being transgender. They are quoted as saying, did Obanji even have a gender to begin with? Gender is, after all, such a human thing. And so Obanji is this in-between entity and Amizi is in-between genders and all of this in-betweenness is really central to their work. So I just wanted to wrap this up with a quote that Amizi often talks about. It's by Toni Morrison and it goes, I stood at the border, stood at the edge and claimed it as central, claimed it as central and let the rest of the world move over to where I was. Fascinating. Yeah. The summary of the death of Vivek Oji. They burned down the market the day Vivek Oji died. That's the first sentence of the novel. It's also the entire first chapter. What follows is the tumultuous, heart-wrenching story of one family's struggle to understand a child whose spirit is both gentle and mysterious. Raised by a distant father and an understanding but overprotective mother, Vivek suffers disorienting blackouts, moments of disconnection between self and surroundings. As adolescence gives way to adulthood, Vivek finds solace in friendships with the warm, boisterous daughters of the Niger wives, foreign-born women married to Nigerian men. But Vivek's closest bond is with Osita, the worldly, high-spirited cousin whose teasing confidence masks a guarded, private life. As their relationship deepens and Osita struggles to understand Vivek's escalating crisis, the mystery gives way to a heart-stopping act of violence in a moment of exhilarating freedom. What does it mean for a family to lose a child that they didn't really know? So how did you guys find the book? I feel like because I, I'm the one responsible for us reading this book that I should <laughs> go first. I liked this book, but I didn't enjoy reading it. If you get my, my drift, it wasn't a book that I would reach for at the end of the day and think, yes, I get to read another chapter of this book. I liked it. I think the writing is really strong. The writing's super vivid and beautiful. It's just, I didn't find there was any hope in this book. I mean, I think Amizi does talk about how they do think there, there is some hope, and there is a little bit, but I just found it very sad. And, and because it's written quite poetically, um, it's not like a page turner, you know? It's not that I didn't enjoy it because it's sad or depressing. It's just, I liked it. Oh, I'm not being very clear. I liked it, but I just, it was not a joy to read. <laughs> No, I get it. And yeah. it, for me, th this is one of those books where I, I'm reminded about the value of book clubs, because without this podcast or this this group, I don't think I would ever have known about this book or had this this author on my radar. And so uh, I was introduced to a whole different uh, culture, a whole different world. And yeah, I um, <laughs> again, I, I seem to be the contrarian today. I did find it like um, a page turner in that I found it was almost like we had a, um, a jigsaw puzzle and we had all these pieces, but 
we had lost the box. So we didn't know what the picture was. And we only had these individual pieces that somehow we tried to put together. And then partway through the book, it's like, well, maybe, okay, we don't, we don't have all the pieces. We're going to have to make do with what we have. And I love the analogy at the very beginning of the book that was, if this story were a stack of photographs, this is the first one you'd see. And I felt that not only does the idea of photographs play a huge plot point towards the climax of the novel, but it also gave the sense that these are different stories, perhaps from different times, and they're they're all pulled together almost in, a, in this a mosaic. And, and I found the the book sort of totally said like very stressful to read. There were moments of tension that I felt the author did extremely well in drawing out, like just the whole scene when they go to Auntie Kavita with the with the photos, and mm-hmm. and uh, I just my stomach was I, I couldn't put the book down because I'm like, what, how is this going to play out? So for that, I was grateful for reading it. Again, I spent quite a bit of time on uh, Google Street View, as I do with books. And amazingly, Nigeria does not have a great network, or maybe understandably, of uh, uh, Google Street View. Many of the places have not been mapped. And the curious thing is that if you go virtually on any Google Street View in Nigeria, if you turn the camera 360 degrees, there is a police car behind the Google car. <laughs> and I looked into it, because uh, if you look up, and, and part of the reason is because the, uh, if the, it didn't have a police escort, there was a very good chance that the car would be ransacked mm. uh, as it was driving around. So it's if anyone's interested, go check it out. You'll see the police. Sometimes it's uh, an SUV and sometimes it's like maybe two car lengths back. And so, so it, it's something interesting. I Just as a side, I, I learned from this book. Hmm. I liked this book. But I didn't love this book. There are a lot of things I did love in this book. A lot of the use of language, the way that they integrated Nigerian pidgin into it. And it's like, as an English speaker, you can pick out and get an understanding of it. But there's still stuff I felt like I missed. I thought the descriptions of grief in this book were so vivid and authentic. Like, it, I really felt the grief of the characters in a way you don't always feel in a book, or at least that I don't always feel in a book. A lot of aspects to this I liked. Other things, like I kind of felt like some threads just dropped here and there and picked up here and there, and it wasn't it wasn't as cohesive a story as I would have liked. So, you know, I have some reservations about parts of it. But overall, I like this book and uh, I do did enjoy getting the different cultural things from Nigeria. Yeah, it's a complicated book in some ways, right? There's so many different pieces. One of the things that I was divided on is the way that, like, you know that there's something with Vivek. Says so right at the beginning. Doesn't tell you what for the longest time, and you're just kind of piecing together. Is it just a malaise about life, just depression? I say just, I don't mean to minimize that, but is it, like, that straightforward? And it's like, is Vivek gay? Is, you know... I suspected there would be a transgender connection at some point from some of the initial imagery, I guess. But nothing's really clear right up until the end. And then like the last chapter with Osita, you finally get the picture of what actually happened on the day. And it's not what I pictured at all. Like I didn't know exactly what it would be, but that wasn't it. I still found it a satisfactory end. But it's, yeah, it was... Is complicated and layered and uh, imperfect, but overall, I like that. And I, and I, I agree with you about sort of the incomplete feel, but again, that to me, it feels like that was intentional that the story wasn't sort of 
told to us in a traditional conventional timeline that we are are only getting bits and pieces and some sections are extremely intense like some of the some of the love scenes uh i found myself just feeling like i was sharing like a very intimate moment with these characters that i almost like i felt like i should be i should be reading this with these characters <laughs> I, this is a private time for them and then i thought it was very very skillful how uh, the book would then the next chapter would pull back and then again you'd get almost a superficial uh one of my favorite chapters of all i may note it was chapter 16 and it was the whole story of ebenezer the vulcanizer uh mm. who was the chap who was fixing tires and how uh you know his wife and him they were wanting to have kids but it was unclear if uh, the fertility problems were with him or with his wife but he was too proud to go to the hospital to get checked and then he sort of started this sort of relationship with the woman that was running the um little cafe little across the street and but there was so much sort of like so many poor role models in this book in terms of uh, people that are honest in their relationships and and uh, trustworthy that this this story was a little gem because sure he was tempted by this woman and and he was you know but then the the fire and the riot starts that and he goes and he knows his wife is at the market and he goes and she's so surprised to see him and he's there and so I'm here like I'll help you out and then I just feel like that whole little chapter was just like a nice almost a little vignette of this person's kind of journey and and I, I, I in my head I've, I've written a very happy ending for, for, for Ebenezer <laughs> and, and his wife uh what did you guys think of that little? It, it, but it felt kind of apart from the story, except for one point where he he says he notices a you know a woman, a tall you know dark woman walking down the street and stuff, and they talk about that. Of course, we find out later it's Vivek. What did you guys think of that little sort of aside chapter? What did... I like Dennis mentioned earlier the kind of loose threads, and I found like that as an example of it. Like it seems a lot to have this whole interlude with just the express purpose of kind of a morality tale but also i think more the fact that you know there's vivek walking through it the you know the girl with the long hair so i just felt it kind of came out of nowhere and it just didn't fit in i enjoyed that chapter i thought it was one of the most readable bits but it just it seemed like it didn't fit in with anything else that was going on in the novel and i mean we're not getting a linear story here. We're jumping around in time. We are jumping through different narrators. And that was just another time where I was like, okay, we get this one thing and then we never hear about it again. Like, you know, I think about Vivek's fugues, you know, it's such a integral part of the beginning. And then there's no resolution about what that is. I thought it was strange that we really didn't hear much about um, characters like Juju and Alun and Somtu until the middle, and then they became very pivotal at that point. So just bits that were a little awkward to me. I felt that about a lot of segments of the book, and that particular chapter, it was a little disorienting. Like, why are we now focused on this guy? We're spending a lot of time with this guy. Whoa, it's okay. There's Vivek. Uh, okay, now still with this guy. Was it just for the glimpse of Vivek? It was a little disorienting. And as we're talking about it, I feel like that maybe is one of the themes of the novel this whole disconnection thing that happens. Like, nothing's ever completely settled in this book, which I guess is a way of, you know, an analogy to Vivek, who eventually is Nimdi, not really being settled and none of the relationships being really settled either. It's always a bit in motion. That kind of thing connects with me or appeals to me in some levels. 
not that I'm transgender or in the same environment, so but I connect with it on the kind of the, the malaise of life kind of feeling that Vivek had. Uh, there's this one quote uh, in the first half somewhere where he talks about how his life, it's felt like he's kind of been twirled through concrete and first he's managing to just go through it and a little slowly, but then it starts sticking to him and he starts getting weighed down. And to me, that felt like an analogy for life. Cause that's how I often feel about life. just weighed down by all the things that get to you. So it felt very universal there. And that type of story has always appealed to me. Uh, stories of people who are just struggling to cope with the world. To give an example, like there, there's a movie from the 80s called The Survivors with Robin Williams and Walter Matthau. It's a terrible movie, objectively. Like you watch this movie, it is terrible. But there's one scene at the end where Robin Williams's character has an emotional breakdown. And Robin Williams was always brilliant about performing this type of thing. And for that one moment, this became one of my favorite movies, even though the rest of the movie really isn't that good. <laughs> like, you shouldn't watch it. <laughs> Don't go out and watch it, even if you can find it. But for me, that type of thing really connects. And that was part of what I liked about the book is the way the characters were just struggling to cope with life and with themselves. And so I feel like even if you're not into trans issues or cultural issues with Nigeria specifically or things like that, that it's still very relatable to a lot of people. And I feel like I've wandered off the topic a little bit here. Well, just to pick up what you're saying, Dennis, is that uh, it seemed like the characters, including Vivek, they they never felt comfortable in their own skins. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the language and the pronouns, which I found interesting in the book that... To my knowledge, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the term trans or transgender is ever used in the novel. We're sort of shown, not not told, Vivek's conflict or his maybe despair of, of just not knowing why uh, he is the way he is. I just say he because for most of the novel, he's referred to as a he by his friends, his family. And then very interestingly, in that chapter that you're talking about, Dennis, where Osita kind of tells the whole story uninterrupted of what happened on that day at the market, I believe that's the first and maybe only time that uh, Vivek's referred to by his other name, Nendi, and and the pronoun she, which uh, at the very end, after after the he dies... Uh, it feels like at that point, he, it's almost like he's he's freed. Uh, she's freed. Uh, they're freed from from the constraints of, of what they were living under. And does that explain the fugues? I don't know. I mean, there, there's even like a uh, almost a spiritual element that may come from the author's Nigerian belief system that perhaps Vivek is an incarnation of his uh, grandmother because of the this starfish shaped um, scar that they both share and so that's an interesting component it's sort of there it's not really developed beyond just uh maybe this is something that, that it's going on so how did you guys feel about the like the pronouns and how we never get a very clear definitive answer as to vivek og yeah, that was something I wondered about right at the end, because it only really becomes obvious right at the end. And so I was wondering, as we were going into the podcast, how do we refer to Vivek or Nemdi? Because, you know, you get used to calling someone something through your association with them. And I guess that's one of the complicated things about transitioning is all these people who knew you one way have to transition to referring to you another way. And it is, uh, 
mentally challenging exercise, which I experience here because I experience Vivek as Vivek for the whole novel right up until the end. And then it's like, oh, no, Vivek wants to be Nemdi. Nemdi is the happy version, the, the, the version that feels complete to Nemdi. But in my mind, it's still Vivek because that was the whole novel, right? So that's... Uh, it's an interesting experience because I don't personally know anybody who's transitioned. So I haven't had to make that mental adjustment in person with anybody that I know. Although I should say I do know one person online who I only know online who transitioned. But that was a little easier because I've never met them and didn't have the same kind of baggage uh, of my own to go with that. So, yeah, I found that experience interesting. And... Um, I guess a small taste of what maybe it would be if someone I know does transition. But yeah, I didn't feel, I don't feel entirely comfortable with it because I mentally, I still haven't made that switch even with this book, although I only finished it yesterday. So that <laughs> I haven't had a lot of time to process. I mean, I think at its core, this book is a mystery. It's a mystery of who killed Vivek. You know, it's Kavita as, you know, trying to figure out who killed her child. But then I think there's also the mystery of of what exactly is happening with Vivek. And I mean, I came into this book knowing that that's what it was about. I mean, I, the author is non-binary transgender. I read the description. I heard about it. So I knew that this was the story of transgender person who is unhappy and who does get killed. I mean, you can't avoid it from the title in the first chapter. So that gave me an idea of what you're what I was going into. Um, and I'm curious if you didn't know that and you started reading this book, how that experience would be different. I mean, I think because we're presented with Vivek as a male, as a he for the majority of the book, and then it's only at the end where that switches. I feel like it's so it's okay to to refer to them as he. I know people who are trans and the interesting thing, well, what I find interesting is that when someone transitions and it has new pronouns, you refer to them always as the new pronouns, even when you're referring to them as a child or in the past when they might not have been, you know, transitioned, you still refer to them as their preferred pronouns in the present. But that that's not what happens in this book, you know, Vivek. I mean, I guess Vivek doesn't even have the time to really fully transition. So I don't know. It, it is tricky. It's tricky. And for me, that final scenario really brought me back to the first sentence of the book. They burned down the market the day Vivek OG died. And it made me think that, well, that was the first day that Vivek went out in the dress as Namindi in the, in the, or, or felt comfortable to go out beyond her bubble. Uh, which all of uh, her friends were saying, no, you, you can you can live this way, but just live live this way with us. You don't don't go out into the world. And so, in some ways, Vivek Oji died before Vivek Oji died that day. That it was the day that um, she was comfortable enough with herself to go out and to to go to the market and be seen. And it just sort of gave a new layer to that first sentence. Maybe that the the death there were there were more deaths that happened that day than just the physical death. And also that first line in the book, correlation is not causality, but when I read it, I thought that there was some connection, like, oh, Vivek Oji died and people were so upset they burnt down the market. Yeah. Like that was my mindset going into mm -hmm. it. And it's like, oh, okay, this is her. 
not directly related and the riot. And then I thought, okay, well, the riot's happening. The riot causes Vivek's death and that's the connection. And it's like, nope, it turns out that's not it either. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the mystery, right? Yeah. yeah I know you're going through the whole thing and it's like, in the end, it was like Osita's fear of what would happen to Nimdi slash Vivek that caused an accident, a tragic accident a fluke what are the odds you fall and hit your head on a rock you know what what are the odds that kills you it, it, it's such a a tragic accident and that's what happened and you and you only know right at the end so spoilers <laughs> <laughs> well and the other thing about that first sentence too is I, I it's an example but it happens throughout the book is it really forced me to sort of check my preconceptions or ideas at the door because I knew this book took place in Nigeria. And so when I heard about a market burning down, my first thought is, okay, this is a story that takes place in the 1800s because you hear about a market. So this must be like a historical novel. And then of course you get into it and they're talking about, you know, I don't know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and they're talking about, you know, video games and things. So, so I'm like, no, no, this is either present day or very close to present day. Uh, And that's just one small example again, how it's sort of the timing is maybe you think one thing and it's something else and you're challenged. uh, You're you're just challenged throughout the book with your conceptions, which made it to me a page turner, even though it was so hard to read in some parts. Yeah. And also the cultural differences, like the fact that they never really got into the uh, reincarnation thing with uh, Ahuna to uh, Vivek beyond mentioning it a couple of times, I think is maybe because for the author, this is culturally assumed like this is just this is the way it is. And there were a lot of other things that were uh, I assume for a reader from Nigeria would just make more sense. Like, yeah, that makes sense for me as a Canadian reader, not familiar with Nigerian culture at all. There's all these things that just leave me a little uncertain as to what they're referring to. And a lot of my assumptions are just off because I'm not familiar with the culture. I like that kind of thing. Like I like being exposed to another culture and not being entirely familiar with it so that I could just kind of soak some of it in and not have maybe the usual questions and assumptions in my mind. Like, cause I'm aware, okay, I'm probably missing something here, but I'll just roll with it. Mm. But yeah, that was, uh, an interesting aspect of the book. And uh, like I say, I, I loved the Nigerian pigeon phrases and things that were in the book. Like one of my favorites is at the beginning when Chica uh, is getting up the nerve to talk to uh, Kavita, I think it was, but they didn't say get up the nerve or have the guts. It was, he had the liver to do it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay. I like that. I don't know why, but I like the phrase. I definitely like those little things too. It reminded me when I was a kid and if I read, say, a book by a British author and in the book they would use the term petrol instead of gas or they would say lorry instead of truck. I felt like it was like a secret code that I was I was sort of in on and, and I loved that part of that. And also in this book too, all of the sort of phrases I, I've had to look up things and some things you could figure out in the context and others, they didn't spoon feed you these phrases and things. They It, it was very much part a natural part of the the dialogue and it was uh, just added that layer of what felt like authenticity to a complex story yeah and just to backtrack a little bit i think 
another cultural thing that we need to have as an umbrella over all of this is that from what I understand, Nigeria is very homophobic and very transphobic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Vivek being trans, the risk that he, she, they take to go outside, you know, with the wig or the long hair, you know, to talk to his or her, their parents about this, like the, the risks are just so much greater, like this would be an entirely different novel set somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was one of the things I had to remember too. reading it was like, you know, if this were a contemporary novel taking place in North America, there wouldn't be the same risk Uh, like literal risk to the life for this type of situation. I mean, it it still happens even in North America, uh, in Europe, you know, there, there are still risks for people that make that transition depending on their particular family or friends. But in some countries it is very much extremely dangerous. Yeah. That's written into the criminal code as something that they could be, you know, arrested for not even just like mob violence, but it's, it's considered illegal. Yeah. And uh, that puts uh, another spin on it and reminds us, you know, things aren't always the same here as they are everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we we read about these photos of Vivek in dresses and makeup and we think, oh, that that's nice. You know, they're expressing who they truly want to be. But like, what if those are found? You know, though, that could be very serious for Vivek and and uh, his family. Yeah. And the family already had tensions, too, with when the sister-in-law, uh, Mary, yeah, uh, yeah. got Vivek to their church. Oh, and yeah, it was awful. one of those places that does, um, I forget what the official term they use for it. Uh, kind of conversion like therapy. Exorcism. Exorcism. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, like an exorcism where they were trying to beat, literally beat the spirit out of him. Mm-hmm. And that takes place in other places in the world, too. There, I've read about churches in the U.S. that uh, conduct that same type of violence against their parishioners it's always dangerous like people die from that and that was without knowing that vivek was trans uh you know that's yeah. just just not right he's not normal he needs to get a bad spirit out of him and uh that justified beating him and the family dynamics that was another thing that really struck me in this book like the family dynamics were so complicated and delicate yeah, I'm, for, I'm fortunate not to have that kind of difficulty in my family relationships, um, but I know that other people have more complicated relationships, and the ones in this book were just very interesting. Well, I really liked uh, the characterization of Vivek's parents, because I could relate so much. I mean, they were imperfect, but they loved Vivek, mm-hmm. and and they they just wanted him to be happy, and they wanted to help him, but they didn't know how, because they didn't understand what was going on. In fact, like, uh, his friends were like, you're asking the wrong questions. If you start asking the right questions, maybe we can help you. But, uh, and especially the mother who, that very powerful, maybe the most powerful scene in the entire novel for me was when she just busts up the tombstone, Mm. uh, because she realizes that, you know, she failed her child in life, but in death, maybe she can honor them. And the, the change in the, the tombs, the, uh, the inscription from, beloved son to beloved child to me just really that hit home in such a powerful way but yeah they weren't perfect of course they were they were very well i thought um fleshed out complex like you said dennis characters and like the the book jacket described chica as distant it was hard for me to gauge chica because 
he was reserved in a lot of ways. But the the way he was overwhelmed by first the death of his mother and then the death of his child, I connected with that again. Like he felt like a person who was very sensitive, actually, and withdrew because of that sensitivity to the world. And yeah, the mother who couldn't see anything objectively is just everything was seen through the filter of her love for her family and her uh, intense desire that they be okay, uh, especially Vivek. Like she wanted Vivek to be okay and couldn't really brook any idea that would interfere with that. So she couldn't see a lot of things that were happening and Vivek didn't feel safe coming to her. Or coming to his father uh, and the interest like with their response afterwards you wonder could they have come forward could it have worked you'll never know but it was understandable for vivek not to feel comfortable coming forward uh, especially with all the cultural expectations and because of kavita's and uh, chica's you know individual flaws so very dynamic it just reminded me of another loose thread i thought from the beginning when chica hits on mary yeah yeah and i was like okay like this is an interesting dynamic here what what's gonna happen and then it just falls off and we never hear about it again yeah the one yeah. the one imagery thing that did kind of follow through was at the beginning it was if uh if a story were a stack of photos which, you know, the, it kind of bugged me at the beginning. It just reminded me of uh, the Golden Girls, you know. Picture it, Sicily, <laughs> 1942. Uh, just picture, picture, picture. And then no more pictures for most of the book until the end where the pictures were shown to Kavita. And that was where she found the truth. And so there was a tie-in there, but there was this whole section in the middle where there were no pictures anymore. Before we move on to our next section, uh, anybody have any final kind of wrap-up comments about the book? Would you recommend the book to anybody? Like I said, I liked it, but I didn't enjoy reading it. So, no, it's not it's not a book I would run out and be like, oh, I just read this great book. You have to read it. But if someone was looking for something that dealt with trans issues or a book set in Nigeria, um, I think it's very well written. And um, I, I am interested to read other titles by by this author. Yeah, I I have a similar feeling to Toby about the book that I maybe would be maybe not hesitant to recommend it, but I would have to recommend it to somebody who I felt could really get something out of it. So I, I wouldn't just sort of make a blanket. This is a must read book. Of, uh, but I would if I if there's somebody I felt that was struggling with their identity, struggling with uh, the, the world or. I guess it's everyone these days, but I, I would recommend it for that because it's such a, it shows that you're not alone. It shows that the world, you don't have to conform to the world. You can like that quotation from Tony Morrison, you can make the edge your center. Vivek's case maybe didn't work out till the very end, but that's sort of the, the beautiful part of the book that she did have that moment where that brief moment where, where she, she did bend the world to her identity and not the other way around. And that although it ends in tragedy, well, it begins in tragedy. I did feel there was, there was hope uh, in that uh, maybe the family understands a bit more. And, and, and I found too, like the, the outpouring of grief for Vivek afterwards, all the, the people coming over with the food and the family. And if only, well, only Vivek could have seen that the love that was in the community, but they didn't have a way to, to express it. They didn't have the words, they didn't have the, the vocabulary. And of course, the culture, it was prohibitive for him to come forward. 
But um, those aren't really final thoughts. Those are more final ramblings. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to stop there. Yeah, I'll say, um, I, like I say, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't love it, but um, I do think it's a good book if you know someone is looking for something a little different, uh, something that's uh, not a standard genre novel, something with different perspectives. Uh, if you just want something interesting that's out of your ordinary, or probably out of your ordinary reading style, then uh, I think this is a good one to try. Uh, it was not too long. Uh, it uh, The writing is really good and smooth and easy to get through. It's not complicated that way but there's a lot of emotional depth and character depth to it and a lot of things that you'll probably think about afterwards in different ways and uh, so it's thought-provoking so if you're interested in a thought-provoking interesting book that's easy to read i think it's good it's imperfect but i think that's also part of the point so <laughs> so uh since one year is ending and another year beginning we're going to do our annual reading resolution segment instead of our usual book recommendation segment we done this the last few years and i'm just going to lead off uh, with my resolution from last year last year i had mentioned that cozy mysteries are like my comfort read and uh, i was interested in trying cozy mysteries that were a little different like had more diverse authors or more diverse characters uh, than what i've typically read and i have to report back that i failed completely not only did I not read any cozies that were by diverse authors or with diverse characters, I did not read a single cozy mystery all year, which is unfortunate because they I do love them. They're fun. So that brings me to my resolution for this year is that I want to just read some stuff that's fun for me. Uh, I've I found I've been reading a lot of things for the podcast and for, you know, just to broaden my perspective in general. And that's a very useful thing. But sometimes I just want to read something just pure fun like candy so this year i ice want to read planet some... barbarians <laughs> <laughs> i will consider ice planet barbarians because that title just seems so fun uh, and i want to find other books where the title just seems fun and probably uh, at least one or two of them will be cozy mysteries because those are always fun so that's my resolution for this year and i really hope i can actually pull it off well, Dennis, I share your absolute failure in keeping resolutions because last year my I had two. One was to to read a book by Carol Shields, and I did not do that. And it was even worse this year because over the course of the summer, my wife really got into Carol Shields, and she she binge read maybe four or five books, and she said to me, "You have to read unless." And she put it on my bedside table. It's still there. It's, <laughs> it's it, short it, too, that one. I know, I know. Yeah. It, 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 it taunts me every time I, I, I climb into bed and I look over. I'm like, oh, there it is. But I've got this other thing I'm reading. Or, oh, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. So it's still there. I mean, thank goodness for multiple renewals. Multiple, multiple, multiple renewals. So that was not great. And the other one was I, I was very excited to read the biography on Mike Nichols that was coming out this year. Uh, Mike Nichols, you might remember, was a movie director. But before that, he was a, uh, a comedian in sort of the, the golden age of Hollywood. He, had, he led a long life. And I thought, this is great. I'll read this. But I didn't. Instead, I picked up a new biography of Cary Grant, 
which I enjoyed. And I thought, you know, that's enough old Hollywood for me for a while. So, <laughs> so I still didn't get to Mike Nichols. So this year, I'm just going to roll that Carol Shields resolution right over because I feel like until I read one, it's got to be on there. So 2022, and here comes Carol Shields. And I have to say, this is the second time in a row you failed to read Carol Shields yeah. for your resolution. So, <laughs> yeah, so thank you, Dennis, for third, pointing that out. Third this is the third time rolling third over. Time. <laughs> um, and then also, I just was looking ahead at 2022 and a couple of books I'm interested in reading. One is called Tracy Flick Can't Win by Tom Perota. Now, if Tracy Flick sounds familiar to you, Tom Perota wrote a novel called Election that was turned into a movie in 1999. It was one of uh, Reese Witherspoon's first movies with Matthew Broderick. It's a very funny satire about high school elections. And so the author returns to the Tracy Flick character. Now Tracy's grown up. She's a high school assistant principal who decides to go for the top job after her boss announces retirement. So I'm looking forward to a lot of very cringy moments, very a lot of humor. And then the other book I'm looking forward to is uh, an author who we've talked about on this podcast, but we haven't read any of her books, Emily St. John Mandel. She has a new one coming out called Sea of Tranquility. And uh, some of us have read Station Eleven and uh, The Glass Hotel. I haven't read The Glass Hotel yet. I've read Station Eleven. I've got Glass Hotel on my list. I think it's just a little bit above Carol Shields. So I'll get to that. And then, uh, so that's my, those are my resolutions. Let's check in this time next year, see how badly I failed. (laughs) That just leaves me. I use Goodreads, which I know has some problematic aspects to it, but I really like Goodreads. And um, you can set up a reading challenge on Goodreads where you say, I'm going to read this many books a year. So two years ago in 2020, I set up myself to read 50 books. And the whole year I was stressed out about it. Goodreads will tell you how many books ahead you are, how many books behind you are. And like, so the whole year I was just like looking at this number and being like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I did. I just, I read exactly 50 books in 2020, but it was very stressful. (laughs) So this year I decided I would just set myself a number that was easy to beat, that I would get to no problem. So I started the year with 30 and then near the end of the summer, I was getting close to that number and I realized I could just go in and edit my challenge (laughs) to change the number of books to read. So I went and I changed it. I bumped it up to 35. And then when I got close to 35, I bumped it up to 40. So all that to say, I don't think setting a goal for a number of books really works for me. So I have decided for 2022 to read a specific book. It's a classic. It was inspired by both Dennis and um, a booktuber I really like called um, Books with Emily Fox. And it is Don Quixote. Um, um, so 2022, I'm going to read it. It's uh, it's a big, hefty novel. I've been wanting to read it for a long time. I've been thinking I want to read it. And I think saying it out loud will really give me that kick in the butt I need to actually do it. So um, You think. You would think it would. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to knock it out early in the year and get it over with. So I'll, uh, I'll let you know. Good luck. Thank you. It is a big book. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do know it's a little repetitive in parts. But there's something nice about that book. Okay. Okay. And so now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists try to bring out the magic of words by discussing a word or phrase that has been on our minds lately. So this was a word that is actually in this book um, near the beginning of it, and it stood out to me, and I noted it down, and I didn't think of or find a more interesting word since, so I went with it. And that is the word foolscap. So in common parlance, it's uh, it's just a piece of writing paper, but it's just, it's a really weird word. It's not a word I say, but it's a word I 
I know what it means when I see it. So I, I did do some digging and um, it comes from the watermark of a fool's cap that was on paper of a certain size. Um, and then it just became the name for that type of paper, regardless of whether the watermark was on it or not. So I thought that was really interesting and in how it's such an old word, like a word that's been around for so long. Um, and often those words fall off. We don't use them. They fall out of fashion. But it's something that that we're still using. And it's one of those words. I know every word, if you say over and over and over again, it loses meaning. But this one particularly to me, maybe just because what it is is so separate from from the word. So fool's cap. I have a question. Yes. So what is a fool's cap? Like a dense cap? Yeah. Yeah. So oh. there were, like I saw an image of the watermark and it was like like kind of the head of a jester. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in elementary school, I always referred to the eight and a half by 14 paper as fool's cap. Yeah. Oh. And I, as a child, thought it was like fool's cap, like full, it's the full size yeah. paper. It's 14 inches long. It's yeah. longer than the regular paper. Yeah. But yeah. 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 You're right. It's one of those words that when you hear it, you know what it means, but... You have no idea where it came from. <laughs> um, my word this month uh, is also inspired by our uh, novel. Uh, it's Naija, N-A-I-J-A. And that is a word for the type of Nigerian English that has developed over the years because Nigeria was a British colony up until 1960. And because there are so many cultural groups, languages in Nigeria, that to develop sort of a common parlance, a, a lingua franca in the, in the country, this, a, a pidgin English developed, which I thought was very interesting the, that a pidgin English uh, is sort of the first stage of a sort of a dialect. Uh, and then when it gets sort of coded or becomes a language of its own, then it's referred to as a creole. And if you look at Nigerian English or Niger English, it's used interchangeably in some cases. And what's interesting is that in 2011, Google launched a search interface that used Nija as its search tool. And in 2017, the BBC launched the BBC News Pigeon, uh, which is pretty interesting that you can look up the BBC News and it's, it's written out in Nigerian English. And in 2020, the Oxford English Dictionary added 29 Nigerian English words to its dictionary, recognizing Nigeria's contribution to English as a global language. And so I thought I just, it's not just single words, but certain phrases that come up. So I just have just a couple here as an example. So one that comes up a lot in the novel is Okada, which is the motorcycle taxi that goes all over the cities. And it's named after the defunct Okada Airline that ran in Nigeria because these Okada taxis, it's, they're the only way you can fly around the cities. So that's mm -hmm. how the Okadas got their name. And this is a phrase I just loved, ember months. And that refers to the last four months of the year, September to December. So if you're in the ember months, which we are now recording at the end of December, I just thought it was just like a lovely image of like the year burning out and here's the ember of it. And the one that we've been doing here all, all day is to rub minds together, which means to consult <laughs> or to confer with other people. So uh, those are just some examples of the Niger language. There's a website, nigelingo.com, which you can uh, find more. Or there's one, another one, the NigerianEnglishDictionary.com. So there's lots of places to look it up. And I just found that interesting. Niger. One of my favorite words in the book was uh, wahala. Mm. which was uh, translates as trouble, trouble and yeah. often heard as no wahala, like no trouble or yes, like I'll do this, you know. Yeah, like no, no problem. Or yeah, yeah, no wahala. I, I like the way it rolls off the tongue. It's yeah. lovely. Another one, like a vague. 
I think which just means like please I think uh, it's just it just it's just one of those words that they throw in that uh, yeah they throw in into the novel and it's it just adds just that little bit of flavor which I loved yeah it's a it's a beautiful sounding language or a way of talking like I, I just enjoyed that that was nice so for my word uh, I'm gonna give a bit of an explanation about my mindset which brought me to the words so Ever since I was in, I think it was high school, I got my first how to study book because while I always did well in school, I was never terribly organized and I thought I should be more organized. And uh, so I read a book about how to study, about how to set up your desk and take notes and things like that. And I promptly, you know, forgot about it after I, after like a month. And my life has been punctuated by these moments where I decide I will get more organized and I will take notes and I will do this and that. And uh, so I, get sucked into these little personal productivity cycles, which happens to a lot of people, I think, because there's a whole productivity industry. And this happened to me recently again. And if you're into productivity, one of the key buzzwords now is personal knowledge management. And this is where you try to not just have notes, because like 10 years ago, everyone was using Evernote and collecting every bit of knowledge they could. And they had all these notes and they didn't have any good way of getting them out again. So personal knowledge management is this idea of you can't just take notes. You got to have some way to bring them up again into your mind over and over to create like a second brain to help you with it. And one of these methodologies that became really popular recently is something called Zettelkasten. And that's my word for the month. Zettelkasten comes from the German. Zettel means little slips of paper and Kasten means box. So it's a box with little slips of paper in it. And if that makes you think of the old card catalogs we used to have, well, that's that's related. Uh, or recipes on index cards in a little box. Yep, same kind of idea. There was a sociologist named Nicholas Luhmann, who lived from 1927 to 1998, and he built up a Zettelkasten of some 90,000 uh, slips of paper in boxes. And he came up with a system where he assigned each of them a unique identifier. Each slip only had one idea, and he would refer to other ideas by using their unique identifier. So he would have essentially hyperlinks, like a web page, but in his boxes. And he kept extensive notes. And as a result, he was able to be incredibly prolific. He published over 70 books and over 400 scholarly articles. Uh, and at his death, he actually had even more than that unpublished still sitting there. So he was able to be incredibly productive with the system. So it has become uh, an inspiration for many people. Nowadays, of course, we have computer software that can do this linking for you. And you can get into all kinds of discussions about how to set up your Zettelkast and it's uh, search for it on YouTube and you will find just video after video talking about people setting up their Zettelkasten. So that is my word for the month, Zettelkasten. I have not set up a Zettelkasten system and I'm not going to because I know I'm just going to fall off on this right away. But um, I thought it was an interesting word. Can I sneak in a quick recommendation? I don't know, Toby. Well, it's the end of the year. <laughs> I think we could probably make an exception this oh, one time. Because while I, I don't want to shout this book from the rooftops, I do want to shout this TV show from the rooftops. Um, so like The Death of Vivek Oji, this TV show, it's about a non-binary transgender person of color. Um, it's called Sort Of. Have either of you heard of it or watching it? No. It's a Canadian show. It's on CBC. It is about a transgender person named Sabi, who is a nanny to a family in Toronto. And it's so good. 
I mean, whereas the book is like is pretty serious and doesn't have a lot of joy. The show, while obviously dealing with some serious issues, just has a lot of comedy and funniness and optimism and hope. And it's just it's so well cast. Like, I can't even do the caveat. It's a good show for a Canadian show. Like, it's just a good show, period. Um, And I think it's like eight episodes. It's on CBC Gem. So it's really accessible. And I I it's it's so good. It's so, so good. Sounds interesting. Nice. Yeah. I'll link to that in our show notes. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. So you sort of recommend it? I uh, a thousand percent <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> so unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're reading The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Elwood Curtis has taken the words of Dr. Martin Luther King to heart. He's as good as anyone. Abandoned by his parents, brought up by his loving, strict, and clear-sighted grandmother, Elwood is about to enroll in the local black college. But given the time and place, one innocent mistake is enough to destroy his future, and so Elwood arrives at the Nickel Academy, which claims to provide physical, intellectual, and moral training which will equip its inmates to become honorable and honest men. In reality, the Nickel Academy is a chamber of horrors where physical, emotional, and sexual abuse is rife, where corrupt officials and tradesmen do a brisk trade in supplies intended for the school, and where any boy who resists is likely to disappear out back. Stunned to find himself in this vicious environment, Elwood tries to hold on to Dr. King's ringing assertion, throw us in jail and we will still love you. But Elwood's fellow inmate and new friend Turner thinks Elwood is naive and worse. The world is crooked and the only way to survive is to emulate the cruelty and cynicism of their oppressors. Have an idea about what we should read next? Let us know. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service, and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to Read. and stores aren't open which is weird because you think it would be Boxing Day and and my mom loves Genie's Cake and the Genie's Bakery shuts down for two weeks over the holidays I guess they do like a big I don't know what they do clean or inventory or something I think it's a mercy they provide to the population <laughs> so, I, so I can tell from first of all from uh, from Toby's uh, facial reaction and Dennis that you, neither of you are on Team Genie's I mean I'm not a Winnipegger so I think what? that's my excuse but oh it's like that bottom is like is cardboard I'm convinced it's cardboard most of my life I never had one I just heard about them people were always like oh did you they they brought a genie's cake it was wonderful and it's like oh okay i've never had a genie's cake and then in uh, i don't know in my 30s i had one for the first time i think it was so i said like, here you go and i'm like where'd you get this cake from <laughs> well it's a genie's cake this is a genie's cake. Oh, they're so bad. Well, all, all I'll say is my, my mom is a pro, it's a proud North Ender, and so genie's cakes were a part of her growing up, and by default or by osmosis, a part of our family tradition. So every every birthday, every celebration, uh, there's a genie's cake, and and I'm I'm I, I love them. 
So, mm -hmm. uh, but then again, I don't know how much of it is a, a nostalgia thing that when I eat it, I just think back of all the family gatherings or, or if it is, but I mean, I, I really do think they're, they're delicious. 